Welcome to the second of three parts of this roundtable discussion with the faculty of the Educational Initiative, Challenges in Managing Acute Bleeding in Patients with Hemophilia. These podcasts were produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk, Inc. In part two, Drs. William Dager and Mark Redding discuss considerations in controlling bleeding and preventing thrombosis when managing acute bleeding in patients with hemophilia. Hello, my name is William Dager. I have the pleasure of having Dr. Mark Redding joining me today, so I'd like to welcome Mark. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're here today talking about some of the issues faced with uh, managing uh, hemophiliac patients. You know, when you start these therapies, sometimes we start along a, a certain clotting factor therapy, and we're not getting either the response we need or we're getting a lot of response. So what if we're not getting the response we need and we're still giving a fairly aggressive doses and then a decision may be to, well, let's add or switch therapies. What would you think if I was a pharmacist and I was giving like a factor eight product and then another clotting factor is added on top of it? Is that something that we might see occasionally or generally do we see switching from one agent to another agent? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the only reason that you would switch from one you know one class of product to another um, uh, you know if you're switching from factor eight to something else would be if the patient were to develop an inhibitor in which case the antibody would neutralize a factor eight and, and factor eight wouldn't be useful anymore as far as switching within the factor eight product choices from one product to another you know, there really isn't any hematologic reason to do that maybe based more on patient preference and that sort of thing but you know, if the patient's still bleeding and the factor level is in the normal range, uh, switching products isn't going to help. It's the bleeding's not from hemophilia. So, you know, as we were talking about earlier, making sure that there isn't some other reason for bleeding, thrombocytopenia or, you know, an actively bleeding vessel at the surgical site, that sort of thing. So I, I would say from a pharmacy perspective, if you see an order for a change in factor, that should come with some explanation from the clinicians about what's going on, making sure that we're we're all on the same page here, because that would be an unexpected and usually a, a significant clinical event. It would be really important to make sure everybody's on board with what exactly is going on. And with that, sometimes, you know, the bleeding continues. And there's been a, a remergence of interest in these antifibrinolytic agents. Mm-hmm. And I know there's not a lot of data adding to it, but there's some information out there I've seen that you can actually add an antifibrinolytic to a person who's getting uh, clotting factors infused. Have you, first of all, used that therapy at all? And what kind of parameters do you think about when you're doing that process? Um, yeah, we, we do do that on occasion. Um, the, the, as, you, as you indicated, there is some literature, although it's not, um, it's not uh, great in terms of methodologic design and so on. But there are certain tissues uh, in the body where there are high concentrations of fibrinolytic enzymes, the GI tract, the urinary tract, oral cavity, and so for bleeding from those locations or bleeding uh, related to surgeries in those places, uh, we do often add an antifibrinolytic agent on top of the factor replacement. The only caution there is you have to be very careful with the urinary tract bleeding. Use of antifibrinolytics for uh, urinary tract bleeding is, is generally contraindicated because of concern about potential clotting off of the ureters or the bladder. Specifically, I think the, the biggest use of it here is uh, in our center is in uh, bleeding in the GI tract and for dental dental procedures and dental bleeding. There is some literature, uh, orthopedic surgery patients treated with antifibrinolytics in, in combination with factor replacement. I think the the evidence that it's beneficial or necessary is certainly much less solid, and I would say it's not something that's routinely done 
certainly not done in our center on a routine basis. But worth keeping in mind uh, if things are not going well. Uh, the other type of patient in which you might want to consider that would be a patient with advanced liver disease. They have you know complicated coagulation deficits problems, and sometimes adding antifibrinolytics in those types of patients can be helpful. But again, that would be an unusual circumstance. Would be something we do routinely from the beginning. Those are great key points. Uh, we struggle as pharmacists in um, making sure that we're doing the safe thing for the patient. We're doing the right thing. Obviously, these things are very expensive products and always on our radar to make sure that we're wisely and judiciously use these therapies. And uh, I really appreciate the insights that, that you've given us. I think from the pharmacist's perspective, it's important to make sure in advance that you have some sort of plan in place when you have these patients come in. Who are the people you're going to contact? Maybe if you're at a, a center, which pharmacy may be carrying these products? And I think for pharmacists, when you get these orders, I think it's important to be able to focus on what's going on and make sure you do the right thing, especially when you're not familiar with it. It Kind of avoid a lot of distractions until you at least get the process put into place. And double checks, all these things that we've learned are are really important to make sure that we got it right, that the nurse is aware of the therapy and that when something's sent there, that the nurse knows uh, how it should be put up and infused are all key components to making sure that the therapy that's desired to be put in place actually gets implemented in a timely fashion. And, uh, you know, part of that process, I think some of the things you pointed out have been really key as far as how we decide on the dose, how we decide on monitoring the patient. And I'd encourage the pharmacists also, don't be afraid to venture to the bedside and kind of see what's going on because visually seeing the situation gives you a better understanding of the challenges. Sometimes there's packing or bandages there that the only way we know if they're bleeding is really watching their hemoglobins. Other factors like their platelets, it could be bleeding from more than one source, and I think we have to keep our minds open. We have to consider that if they're transfusing these patients with blood because they did bleed, to give the calcium and other therapies to to make sure that we've done cover the full spectrum of challenges necessary to minimize the amount of blood loss. The, the one other thing I'd like to ask you, sometimes I look at these patients and our patients are getting older now. Our hemophiliacs used to be young. I sometimes, when I look at these patients, okay, now they're in their 50s and they've got hemophilia and now we're starting to deal with diseases like atrial fibrillation or maybe they've had a history of uh, some sort of thromboembolic event or, or such. Now I got to consider that risk for thromboembolism a little bit more. Now, after giving the aggressive therapy, I stopped the bleeding, but they're still immobile. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought about prophylaxis or other things in these more stable patients post-bleeding and what you might want to do, especially as, as you get in an older population? You're referring to DVT prophylaxis? Yeah, something along that line, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it's, that is definitely a hot topic of discussion, so, certainly on our radar now. As you say, the population is aging, so we're seeing you know patients with more risk factors for venous thrombosis, and we're seeing patients that have underlying arterial vascular disease, so they're not immune to that just because they have underlying hemophilia. There's very little literature and, and very little clinical experience in, uh, on a large scale in managing those patients because we haven't had to until very recently. So that, that the, sort of the challenges in managing the aging hemophilia patient is a very hot topic of discussion uh, right now. In, in terms of the specific question about uh, VTE prophylaxis, 
um, it, it's it's certainly appropriate to consider uh, if you're if you're giving factory replacement therapy and essentially eliminating temporarily eliminating hemophilia from the picture. Probably the most uh, clear example of that would be in a patient undergoing orthopedic surgery. So, as you know, a lot of these patients have advanced joint disease, and we're starting to do joint replacements uh, in our older hemophilia patients. That's a kind of surgery that comes with significant risk for DVT, and certainly trying to prevent a clot rather than dealing with treating one in a patient like this would be ideal. I think there's clearly been a move, and certainly in our center, uh, we do this. We do provide routine pharmacologic DVT prophylaxis for our hemophilia patients undergoing orthopedic and other major surgeries if it's otherwise indicated based on the procedure. Of course, this requires that you have to be replacing the factor at the same time. Certainly while they're in the acute setting, still in the hospital, while they're on daily factor replacement therapy, we do use pharmacologic uh, DVT prophylaxis. There's less clarity about what to do when they're ready to transition out of the hospital. Uh, when they get to the place where they're not needing daily factor replacement therapy, uh, I think generally most of us would stop pharmacologic DVT prophylaxis, but there aren't any, uh, there aren't any good studies uh, yet published that have really defined the optimal way to do that, but it's certainly something that we think about. Um, in terms of the inhibitor patient, the patient with an inhibitor antibody against factor eight or factor nine, I think the general consensus is that we don't use pharmacologic uh, DVT prophylaxis in those patients, even if they're undergoing orthopedic surgery. Uh, and that's mostly based on the fact that the treatment with the bypassing agents, which, which are needed to, to treat and prevent bleeding in those patients, is less less consistently effective than uh, with factor eight or factor nine replacement. And so we, we worry more about the bleeding risk. But again, that's a group in which um, they often have a lot of immobility and may have other risk factors, and, and the optimal way to manage them really hasn't been defined yet. So, so a lot more to come on that, I think, in the next few years. This issue about arterial vascular disease risk for stroke and heart attack, um, I think right now um, the way we look at that is just to be sure that we're not over-replacing factor, uh, making sure that we're not making the level supraphysiologic. Um, the degree to which that may help protect is, is unclear, but at least it seems to make sense to not over-replace those patients for, for that reason. Those are great insights, Mark. I really appreciate it. I think just I want to get further clarification. So if a patient has no inhibitors that has hemophilia A or B and uh, they're getting like factor eight or factor nine product, they've had an orthopedic surgery because we have pressures that make sure we do adequate prophylaxis. Right. You've been okay to concurrently give the cloning factors and the DVT prophylaxis, obviously with the understanding that there's not a huge amount of hemorrhage occurring in the joint. Is that absolutely. did I get that correctly? Yep, no, absolutely. If if the if the procedure would generally warrant pharmacologic DVT prophylaxis, if we're replacing the factor as we as we should and need to um, to allow the surgery to happen, those patients are all in our center are all considered candidates for pharmacologic DVT prophylaxis. We have not seen any bleeding complications as a result of that, uh, to the best of my knowledge. So I, I think it's I think it's becoming a more standard approach. And you know, I, w I will add though that not all hemophilia centers do a lot of, of surgeries. And so you know we happen to have a center here in Minneapolis where we do a lot of orthopedic surgeries uh, on these patients. And so we have a fair bit of experience. There are other centers that you know maybe don't do this as often. And and so I think the practice probably varies fairly widely. But um, at least in our center, that's that's our approach. And I know other big centers have done the same. And we haven't seen any any, any bleeding complications. Well, that's great. Uh, great, some great insights. Well, I want to thank you for your time today, Mark, and uh, kind of sharing with us.
some of those dilemmas that we face. And just really want to emphasize to my colleagues the importance of making sure that uh, you're able to think clearly, have the necessary support that you can uh, implement these therapies. You know, think these students advance, great communication, and uh, also keeping an eye on what's going on so that uh, everybody's on the same page is going to be probably keys to success in managing these patients. And sometimes we have to evaluate these patients frequently. If there's, there's a high level of bleeding, it's not going to be just once a shift. It may be every few hours. And then as their bleeding uh, stabilizes, uh, then we can obviously monitor at a less frequent interval. But making sure that we have good communication, not only with the physicians, the nurses, but all the parties involved in making sure these therapies are implemented and um, adjusted accordingly, I think are going to be keys for successful management. So I want to thank Mark for his time in answering some of those tricky little questions that we sometimes have when we're trying to accomplish that. You're very welcome. My pleasure. This concludes this part of the roundtable discussion. If you'd like to hear more about managing acute bleeding in patients with hemophilia, please listen to the other two parts of this podcast series. In addition, a web-based continuing pharmacy education activity based on the Mid-Year Symposium will be available in mid-February 2013. To access this activity and other educational activities on this topic, visit the web portal at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash stop bleeding.